Joel or uh, Joel, but I'm not going to keep saying both the whole time, so I'm just going to probably go with uh, my traditional Joel, although uh, in the Hebrew, it's probably more accurately Joel, two, two syllables. All right. So the second uh, book of the 12, <coughs> quite a bit shorter, all right, just three chapters. Review of our historical timeline of, of what's going on here again. Israel exists as uh, two divided kingdoms from 931 to 722, 931 being right after the uh, death of Solomon. Assyria will conquer Israel in 722. Babylon, of course, will conquer Judah in 586, the Babylonian exile from 586 to 538. Over here, Cyrus will uh, decree the Jews can return in 538, and the temple is rebuilt 515. So, as you will see once we get into uh, some of our background information on the book, there is uh, a lot of uh, uncertainty, a big old question mark, if you will, over the date of when it was written. So keeping in mind that the general historical uh, timeline uh, will at least help with the background to the book. Uh, a few other places that we should uh, understand or, or know for the book. Okay, Edom to uh, the east, the right and a little south of uh, the Dead Sea. Philistia here is over on, on the west and Jerusalem right here. Just basically anytime you're trying to think about where Jerusalem is, just find the top of the Dead Sea and go west a little bit, all right? Um, and Tyre and Sidon up here, okay? Uh, Phoenicia territory up in the north um, on the coast right there. I put the, the chart of the world powers in here again just in case you forget or for comparison uh, on, on the time periods. All right, the title of the book, all right, from the, comes from the, the name of the prophet in 1-1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of uh, Pethuel, and so that's where it comes from. Of course, uh, we're going to subscribe to the traditional view that uh, that's also who, who wrote it. So that's our next slide about the author. It means uh, Yahweh is God. We know that he is the son of uh, Pethuel from the scriptures. And that's it. So we really don't know uh, much else about him. It's speculated that he lived in Judah, maybe Jerusalem. 11 other people that have the same name in the Bible, but they're obviously not all him. They're just the same name. So, the son of <coughs> Pethuel, it means his name is Yahweh is God. He makes reference to Judah and Jerusalem uh, multiple times. 232, 3-1. Uh, 3.17, and 3.20. He talks about the citizens of Judah and Jerusalem in 3.6, and 3.19. Uh, Zion, or Jerusalem, in 2.1, 2.15, 2.32, 3.17, and 3.21. And the children of them in uh, 2.23. He also shows a lot of familiarity with the temple and its ministry. 1.9, 13 and 14, 16, chapter 2, verse 14, 17, and chapter 3, verse 18. And seems to be intimately acquainted with the geography and the history of the land. 
chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, 2 to 8, 3, 12, 14, and 18. So, some scholars have suggested that his familiarity with the temple service may indicate he was a priest or the son of a priest. Others uh, speculate otherwise, you know, that he was not, etc. So, as I mentioned, little is actually known. So, he's, he's not any of the other people that are mentioned in, uh, in Scripture. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Joel was a man of vitality and spiritual maturity, a keen discerner of the times. He delivered God's message to the people of Judah in a vivid and impassioned style with a precision and originality of thought that served as a veritable quarry out of which many subsequent prophetic building stones were to be hewn. So that's out of Expositor's Bible Commentary. The date is not specified. So, of course, it leads to a lot of speculation. Like Obadiah, the biggest introductory issue. So, Obadiah and Joel, a big issue related to the background introduction of the book has to do with who uh, or when did it occur. So, your suggestions are are basically everything across the board, right? (laughs) So, if you can think of it, then someone's probably suggested it. Early pre-exile, mid-pre-exile, late pre-exile, or post-exile. So, all of these. Um, obviously, there's great disagreement. Theories range from the 9th century to the 4th century. 500 years worth of, of theories, okay? Uh, some have even sought to date it as late as the Maccabean period, during the Intertestament. So, because obviously the problem is that no date is given. Um, the post-exilic theory, the captivities of God's uh, people have ended. The exiles have returned to their homeland. The temple's been rebuilt. This view calls for a date in the mid-fourth century. A pre-exile. Well, let's do early pre-exile next. A ninth-century date. It is felt the situation depicted within the book best points to the time of the boy king Josiah, 835 to 796 B.C., who began his rule through the regency of the high priest Jehoiada. A middle pre-exile, an early 8th century date, an extensive defense of this view is given in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, so the interested in that view. In the late uh, pre-exilic date, would be a 7th century, that seeks to find a link with the prophet Jeremiah and to harmonize the literary forms and religious outlook of the two prophets. Um, early Early pre-exile is probably like a traditional um, take. Uh, obviously, mid-pre-exile is um, defended expositors. So that's also a, tra- a traditional conservative uh, viewpoint in evangelicalism. So, <coughs> um, Gleason's Archer, which I've referred to him before, eminent Old Testament scholar, he holds to the early pre-exile. So. You know, probably either early or mid pre-exile um, would, would be the, the basis for that. So uh, we don't, we're not going to spend any more real uh, time on it than that. We can subdivide it, though, into two general areas, okay, uh, before and after. All right? The rest of the squabble uh, between the three is, is which area prior to. But um, before exile, argument four. Jerusalem is mentioned several times, but there's no mention of it being destroyed and rebuilt. The mention of the northern army seems to point to Assyria or Babylon as a present threat in 220. 
there's several references to uh, the temple. So it refers to the temple, so probably still seeing this type of thing. Um, arguments for after. He speaks of Israel having been scattered among the nations. He makes reference to the inhabitants of Judah having been sold to the sons of Jabin, the Greeks. Edom is described as having done violence to the sons of Judah. And there's no mention of any kings, priests, or elders seen to be the leaders of the nation. So implication there is, well, there's no king mentioned, so maybe there is no king. And if there is no king, well, it's got to be after the exile. We won't take, take them out. All right? So um, I don't really have a, a conclusive answer. You know, I would go with one of the early traditional views. This is several more arguments listed here from um, Saint uh, Thomas Finley, and I think about three different ones um, listed here. Yeah, the first point is from uh, Skinner, Doctor Skinner. No evidence of a king's influence is manifest in the book. The type of government implied in the book fits that of a regency. Joash was crowned king at the age of seven. And until he reached sufficient age to rule Jehoiada, the high priest ruled as regent. So we kind of alluded to that earlier. Um, he also says evidence of a strong priestly influence is revealed in the book. Jehoiada was the high priest during the reign of Joash and exercised a controlling influence. Uh, no mention is made of the Assyrians or Babylonians threatening Judah, but the enemies mentioned were Egypt, Philistines, Edomites, and the Phoenicians. And Hanson Keefley says in the Hebrew canon, Joel was placed between the books of Hosea and Amos, which suggests the Jews preferred a pre-exilic date. The temple's functioning in 1-9. Could have been before or after the exile. Um, <laughs> Judah is inhabited. Could have been before or after the exile. Also not much help. Both from Hanson Keefley. Um, the Jews are trading with the Sabaeans in 3-8. Some say the Sabaeans and Greeks are the same and are mentioned in Zechariah 9-13, so that's not necessarily conclusive either. Uh, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, and Edom were mentioned as enemies of Israel. That's not conclusive. So, in other words, the point of these is that if people are arguing these are the reasons why, Hanson Keefley is saying, well, it's just really not a very strong argument. It gets kind of inconclusive. Um, Joel is placed between Hosea and Amos. We just mentioned that. I think Skinner said that. That's not much help because the arrangement was due to literary similarities to Amos. Uh, the destruction mentioned in 3, 2 to 3 is so grim that surely it must refer to the Babylonian conquest. Some think this means it has to be after 586, but we've already discussed the logic in dating Obadiah, and the discussion about pouring out his spirit seems to fit well with the final message of preparation for the coming kingdom. Assyria and Babylon are not mentioned at all, which makes one think they've not become a threat yet, or perhaps they've come and gone. So as you can see, you, you read through all this, and like it's, it's all over the place. Um, very hard to figure anything out, and so we're not going to figure it out either. <clears throat> he is mentioned in the New Testament in several different places. All right, the most notable that you probably would know if you knew any of these would be in chapter uh, two of Acts at Pentecost, uh, which is a great exercise in, in hermeneutics because there what you have is uh, Luke writing, recording Peter, who quotes Joel. Okay? So Luke writing what Peter said, he's quoting Joel. Okay? So 
unpack all of that, you, you've got to unpack what Joel's talking about, then you've got to unpack what Peter meant in his speech, and then you've got to unpack what Luke is trying to do with Peter's speech in the book of Luke. Or to add another book in Luke-Acts, because Luke-Acts is generally thought to be one complete book with two parts. Okay, So all that together. So, um, while this is one of the briefest books in the Old Testament, it is at the same time one of the most profound, both in its grasp of the relationship between historical events and the super-historical expectations of the day of the Lord, and also in its impact on the early Christian theology. So, in Acts 2.16, of course, as I was just referring to, Peter states that the things that people were witnessing on the day of Pentecost had been spoken of by the prophet Joel. In Romans 10, as listed there, uh, Paul refers back to uh, Joel as well, and then you've got Mark, etc. Um, some of them are, are direct quotes. Some might be allusions to it. The aspects that are references in uh, the book of, of Revelation as well, and uh, those were compiled by uh, Al Maxey. What are some of the themes in the book? Well, these aren't going to be new themes. Okay, they're prophetic themes, but they're not new. Uh, the sovereignty of God. Joel's depiction of the absolute authority of Yahweh over all the people on earth is among the strongest in the Old Testament. Doug Stewart says. Same Doug Stewart I mentioned earlier. Um, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. How to read the Bible book by book. Several other commentaries. And um, I think he's got commentaries from Word Business Commentary, New American Commentary, etc. Compassion and forgiveness. And then the day of the Lord with both judgment and blessing being the two parts, two sides of the coin for the day of the Lord. Melhus has, has um, articulated it this way. The idea of repentance, as you can see, is uh, mentioned multiple times throughout the book of Joel. So there's obviously a strong theme here, and it's correlated with the day of the Lord. Okay, repent. Why? Because God's coming. All right? And with that, here's what's going to happen. For those who repent, blessings and compassion. For those who refuse, it's a curse. And the locust and drought is going to be uh, a picture of that. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, and relenting of evil. We can have a very simple structure to divide the book, two points, two parts, just like we did for... Hosea, won't guarantee you that for all of the 12, but for these two today, uh, the day of the Lord preview and the day of the Lord punishment, 1, 1 to 217 and 218 to 221. So the preview and the punishment, okay, of the day of the Lord. The first is an interpretation of the locust, that should be locust with a D, plague as a preview of the day of the Lord. And the second, the punishment or judgment of God unfolded for the nations, but restoration for God's people. So remember that the punishment has a flip side. It's got a blessing for the righteous. It's a curse on the wicked and blessing for the righteous. Dr. John Stevenson will um, unfold that a little bit more for us and flesh it out. 
And as we look at this, the, the locust and the army of the Lord in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, right in the center, this call to repent, all right, at the end, the judgment and the promise. He actually further delineates chapter 3 um, into two parts, the judgment and the promise. And um, in his interpretation, he has, based on the theological uh, for, uh, foretelling, uh, the B.C. and the A.D., that's an interpretive theological uh, connection for you there. And the present, the imminent, the future, and ultimate, and the focus on Jerusalem versus the nation. Okay? So that's just to drill it down a little deeper for you and give you something to think about as you consider the book. It begins with mourning over the present desolation, and it ends with rejoicing over the future deliverance. So from mourning to rejoicing. All right. Book itself, chapter 1. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it, and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. What the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all of you wine drinkers, because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lion. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. Grain and drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests who are ministers of the Lord mourn. The fields are destroyed, the land grieves, the grain is destroyed, the new wine dried up, the olive oil fails. Be ashamed, farmers, vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The grapevine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the date palm, the apple, all the trees of the orchard, they've withered. Indeed, human joy has dried up. Sackcloth and lament, you sheep. Well, you ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Your grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred fast, proclaim an assembly, gather the elders, all the residents of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Verse 15. Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near, and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Hasn't the food been cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds lie shriveled in the cases. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals groan. The herds of the cattle wander into pieces since they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pasture of the wilderness. And flames have devoured all the trees of the countryside. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds are dried up and the fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. Blow the horn. And he continues on. Let's, let's stop for a minute. All right? So... 1 1 on through 217. Okay? The agricultural devastation is a foretaste of the impending day of Yahweh. Okay? So, the, uh, the locusts and the devastation that, that they do, okay, is used as an illustration uh, to foreshadow what God Himself was going to do in judgment um, with the people. Who can endure it? Okay? He continues on in. Chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord raises his voice in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are
are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, he says, turn to me with all of your heart. That's the answer. Those who return to Yahweh will endure the day of the Lord. So you've got the, the, the flip sides of the coin. So you've got the judgment, the curse on the wicked, and you've got those who turn to God, actually, uh, they will stand in the day of the Lord. But the wicked will perish. They will not stand. And so continues in, in 12 and following, talking about this repentance that has to happen, the turning of the hearts, the caring of their hearts, not just your clothes. It doesn't want to just be outward signs, okay? You know the Jews, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but you know they would tear their clothes, put sackcloth on, put ashes on their head, they looked horrendous when they were in mourning, right? Let everybody know, okay? Mordecai does this in the book of Esther, right? So he's saying, now I'm not worried about your clothes being torn or ashes and, and whatnot on your, on your head and whatnot. Um, I'm worried about, are your hearts torn? Are you broken on the inside? Verse 14, who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. So you can also hear the ones that are threatened. So the, the idea of the chance that there's an opportunity for this. In chapter 2, verse 18 through 321, those who return to Yahweh are blessed. There's a renewal of Yahweh's favor. There's agricultural uh, bounty. There's power over their enemies. There's a restoration of true worship. And there's a renewal of the covenant. So in 2.11 and following, the question had been, who could endure it? Okay? And other prophets, for instance, Isaiah, in chapter 33, verse 14 to 15, says, The sinners in Zion are afraid, the trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the grain of the gain of oppression, who shakes his hand, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Nahum in one six, Malachi in three two, Revelation six, fifteen to seventeen, all discuss this aspect of who can stand before God. Um, who can ascend the mountain of God might be another way of, of thinking about this. So several passages in addition to just um, Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. You also have Joel 3, 16. Yahweh roars from Zion and utterly utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. In Zephaniah 2, 3. Seek Yahweh, all you humble the land, who do just, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of Yahweh. So, it's not just Joel that has this idea that if you would return to God, you can avoid the negative consequences of the day of the Lord. Similarly, in 2.18 to 3.21, the promise those who return will experience restoration and blessing um, is included both in, in the book of Joel. Okay, You have the renewal of the favor of, of Yahweh in 2.18. You have agricultural bounty in 
2.22-2.44. We've got power over an enemy in chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, the restoration of true worship and the ability to be faithful in 2.26 and 28. Also in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, uh, 30 and following. And the renewal of the covenant in Joel 2.26 and 27. Also connecting back to Deuteronomy 4 and Leviticus 26. So all of these um, are this idea of the promise that is going on. When, when Peter quotes in the book of Acts, uh, Joel, chapter 2, 28-32, okay? he thinks that something is, is going on here related to what Joel is talking about. Peter believes the prophecy was being fulfilled Pentecost. That's, that's the way it appears. Now that is a hermeneutical debate, okay, about what he actually thought was happening in his use of the phrase. Um, this is that is um, the the literal uh, phrase in Greek. Okay, this is that which Joel talked about. Whether it is a fulfillment or the other argument, which I have held um, for. I guess quite some time, is it's analogical. There's an analogy to it. Um, but it appears on the surface that he thought that there was some kind of fulfillment going on here. Um, Peter believed the prophecy was being fulfilled. His addition of the phrase, in the last days, suggests that he was convinced the end times had already begun in his day. Elsewhere, he wrote that Jesus Christ was, quote, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's 1 Peter um, 1, 20-21. So this suggests that Peter saw the last days as beginning with Christ's resurrection. Nevertheless, he still affirms that the climactic last day in the singular was still to come. So there's the singular aspect, the last day, and then there's the last days, plural. Alright? So the last days had started. The last days hasn't yet happened. In, I think, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, that according to the Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and fading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? Has that been fully revealed yet? Well, the answer is no. So there's this, um, it's sometimes called this both and, okay, uh, theology. And so uh, what uh, Joel and what Peter are talking about is there's, there's a plural aspect of it that has begun, and there's a singular aspect of it is that day that hasn't yet come. So, um, in the New Testament, you have, in addition to those passages, in addition to Acts 2, uh, God speaks through Jesus in these last days, okay, in this plural phrase. Um, many antichrists are revealed in the last hour, okay? Let me see if I have, what's on the next, right, next page there. Um... So the Holy Spirit poured out. Okay, the God speaks through Jesus. Many antichrists are revealed. False teachers, end of ages come on believers. 
and awaiting the ultimate end. All of these are, are New Testament um, aspects related to the last days. Okay, um, I'll go back in, in a second to the Old Testament ones. I meant to talk about it first, but I was already rolling. So, so this is how the imagery of the last days is picked up by New Testament authors. Um, the end of the ages, okay, plural, has come on the believers. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and Galatians 4, and Ephesians 1. And so there's several other uh, passages that, that still anticipate an ultimate end, though. So you do kind of have this uh, plural aspect of time that's begun, and then this singular day that hasn't. So the Old Testament portions that are parallel to that deal with the tribulation for Israel, which is judgment leading to captivity, oppression, and persecution. And so we see that in, in the prophets. The false teaching, deception, and apostasy is related to the last days. Okay, it's plural. Uh, there will be a return to Yahweh. The Messiah will conquer Israel's enemies. God will establish a new kingdom and, and rules over it. Reminds me of the Davidic king. Saints of Israel will be raised from the dead. God will establish a new covenant with Israel, and many Gentiles, which were former enemies, will get delivered. All these, again, plural phrase. Okay? The last days, plural. In chapter 3. says that in those days and at that time when I restore the fortune of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and take them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people, my inheritance Israel. The nations have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries and divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. They bartered a boy for a prostitute and they sold a girl for wine to drink. He continues on talking uh, further about the judgment of the nations. Okay. In this passage, okay, in chapter 3 of Joel here, shows that uh, he's going to explain <coughs> what he had spoken of uh, previously. Do you have, um, I have the word yet in 3 and 1. <laughs> What's the first word, you guys? Four. Four, okay, four is a connective word, right? Four is the explanation of, of what just happened in the past, right? So, um, yes, it is a, is a flow connective word that the Holman has here. It's interesting to see if they kept that word or not in the update. But the word four definitely uh, connects with what's in the past. So, um, when he starts chapter three, he's connecting it with what he's already said. When God would restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem in that future day, Okay, he would gather the other nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Okay, literally, Yahweh judges. Okay, Jehoshaphat. If this is a geographic location, this is the only passage in Scripture that names the site of judgment. Okay, so there's going to be a dispute here, okay, a debate. Exact location is debatable since no valley by this name appears elsewhere in Scripture. Many interpreters think it's the valley of Megiddo, just north and east of Mount Carmel. Others believe it is uh, near Jerusalem. Um, another view is
referring in a more general sense to the place where God will judge the nations. That is, in the image symbolic. And in this case, the Valley of Jehoshaphat would mean the place where Yahweh judges without reference to a specific geographical site. Okay? Um, the, the clause, then I will enter into judgment with them there, uh, may support that um, view. Valleys, as you know, were preferred locations for battle because the hills are, are, are not good for the battles, especially um, if you had um, chariots. However, the Israelites often didn't have chariots, so they were sometimes at a disadvantage in the valley, which is why several times, like the book of Judges, um, God had a thunderstorm come and flood the place, but then it's muddy and the chariots don't work so well. So later on, Joel will refer to this place as the Valley of Decision in verse 14. There God would judge the nations for scattering his covenant people, his inheritance, and for dividing up the land. They had thought so little of the Hebrews that they gambled for them. Okay, well, that's also what they did for his clothes on the cross, right? Stevenson, Dr. Um, Dr. John Stevenson, okay, um, connects Second Chronicles 20 uh, with the passage, and what took uh, what took place there. And so he seems to uh, push more towards the a geographic uh, connection with it than some others do. So um, I'm personally not not exactly sure uh, what it is on that. Anyways, so that's your two options with that. So in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, chapter 3, verse um, 2. Anything, I, I don't really have a, a further clarification for you on that, but that's your two options for you to interpret it, at least. <coughs> All right. Together 
and it's not just 12 individual books, but it's, it's all connected together with a, a theological message that runs throughout it. And so I find that very uh, interesting, and I think it's compelling to uh, further that point that the 12 is actually one. Does that make sense? All right. That being said, um, the only other thing I, I want to really probably uh, touch on related to uh, Joel is the further expansion on the, the day of the Lord. So, as the as the, the prophets unpack what God is going to do in the future. And we've looked in the past at this idea of how prophecies are kind of like on these mountains. Um, that sometimes if, if you're standing here, all you see is this until you get to here, and, and then you can see this. And so prophecies that are often in the future often unfold in parts. And as we look at what the day of the Lord means and how it unfolds, I think that's one of the things we have to realize is the... Old Testament prophets didn't always have or didn't have uh, as much revelation given to them as what we now have available in Scripture. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have what Jesus revealed to them. Hebrews tells us that Jesus has, has um, now revealed and has been the, the prophet for these last days, which is um, a phrase that means Jesus is in the last ages, the last days. So God has sent him as, as the prophet. So the central thrust of the Day of Judgment is it's for both the nations and for Israel. The prophets declared the day of Yahweh would come, but it would be a day of judgment for Israel as well as for the nations. And this isn't just in Joel. It's Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6 and, and verse 9. It says, Well, for the day of Yahweh is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. It's also in Amos 5.18 and Zephaniah 1.14-18. And this day, of, this day of the Lord is going to be characterized by um, war and mourning. Okay, So if you look at Joel, you see that in chapters 2, um, verse 11 through 13. So 2.11-13. Uh, Yahweh utters his voice before his army. His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Um, also, it's associated with the outpouring of God's spirit in 228-32, the portion that we just looked at, um, that then Peter quotes in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. It's also a day of darkness, not light. In Amos 5, 18-20, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Why would you have the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned hand against the wall and a serpent bit. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? It's also a day of kingdom restoration and bounty. Amos 9, 11 to 14. So this will come up again next week with Amos, but it's a day of storm and darkness and devastation. Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. And a day of judgment and salvation in Zephaniah 3, 8 to 11. So that all seems very gloomy and dark. But it's also a day of joy in God and God's joy in his own. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O 
Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Zion, of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, there's a phrase, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, who will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So it's a day of, of joy also. Um, that's the flip side of the coin. Uh, it's a unique day of God exaltation, creational transformation, and pervasive holiness. Zephaniah 14, 7 to 9, um, and 14, 20. It's a day of complete burning for the wicked, but of joy and victory for the righteousness. Malachi 4, 1 to 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. So, reflection in it, and we'll wrap it up for today. John the Baptist is the forerunner of the day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 had mentioned, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, Yahweh comes, shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Matthew 11, 9 and following said, What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yeah, I tell you, more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. So he's saying, yeah, that, that John the Baptist, that was the Elijah that talked about by Malachi that was going to come before me. He was, he was severe by the hearing. So John saw Jesus as the one who would inaugurate the day of awesome judgment. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. So I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat in the barn, but the Um, in the midst of the days, plural, that we 